The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Hello and welcome to Trad Reviews on the Restoration Radio Network. My name is Stephen Heiner and that music that you heard is from the movie Divergent. Uh, one of the things that we'll be reviewing today on Trad Reviews, as you know, uh, Trad Reviews is something, uh, it's a show in which we review a book, a film, and a game each time, remembering that the restoration is not solely about religious things, but about everything that surrounds our life. And um, I don't always get to have these two gentlemen on a, on a show with me, but uh, very happy to welcome to the episode both the executive producer of Restoration Radio, Justin Soder, and the co-founder Nicholas Wansbutter, gentlemen, it's a pleasure to be on with you. Pleasure is all mine, Stephen. As I said, uh, we're going to talk about three different things today. We'll be talking about the movie Divergent, which came out quite some time ago in in both the United States and in Europe. We're going to be talking about a book called Small is Beautiful by E.F. Schumacher, which came out in the 1970s. And we'll be talking about a game called Settlers of Catan, which has come out uh, fairly recently, but not as long ago as the 1970s. And we're going to start with uh, the movie Divergent. And uh, I'm going to hand the ball to Nicholas, because Nicholas uh, is very good at, at good, concise summaries of things. And uh, we'll, we'll, let you, uh, we'll let you handle that, Nicholas. Tell us about the movie Divergent. All right. Thanks, Stephen. So Divergent is, uh, would be classed as a science fiction movie. It would also be classed as one of this um, subgenre of post-apocalyptic or dystopian uh, science fiction type of movies. It's also a movie clearly focused towards teenagers. It features teenage characters, for the most part, certainly the main protagonist, who is a young lady by the name of Beatrice Pryor. Now, the main uh, item of interest uh, that underlies everything in the story is that this takes place in... Chicago of an unknown future. It's not clear how far in the future we're talking about. There was some sort of cataclysm or there's reference to a a war, possibly a nuclear war, given the amount of devastation. Um, Although by the point of the movie, um, the land looks fairly normal in terms of there's grass and there's trees and there's lots of wrecked buildings and ruins, but there's also a lot that's... um, uh, functioning again, and uh, civilization is re-emerging, or has re-emerged, and the uh, main feature of this civilization is that uh, all people, all inhabitants of the city of Chicago, and we don't know what's beyond the walls that are built up around the city, uh, all the citizens there are divided into five factions, and uh, each of them has a has a special trait to them. Um, 
the, the first faction that Beatrice Pryor belongs to and grew up in at the beginning of the film is called Abnegation. They're basically the Christians. Uh, they're uh, all they're about modesty. They're about helping others, having compassion. Interestingly, they're also the people who run the government because they're uh, selfless and they're only th- thinking of other people. And uh, they dress very modestly and all, all wear gray. Then you've got the faction called Amity, who are the farmers. They all wear red or orange, and they're, you don't see much of them in the film. They're supposed to just be friendly, happy people who grow the food for everyone. You've got Candor, who's another faction that you don't see much of at all. They wear white, and they're really the lawyers and the, I, I guess, the uh, people who um, run the court system. And they're all about being honest and being interested in justice. And when I say honest, they're known for being brutally honest. Then there's the group called the Erudite, who wear blue. And they're the intellectuals, they're the scientists, they're the intelligent people. And then you have the uh, fifth faction, who wear all black. And they're called Dauntless. And they're supposed to be the soldiers and warriors of the film. And at the opening of the film, uh, it's a kind of a coming-of-age ceremony where all the young people of a certain age from these factions, they have to undergo a test that's going to tell them which faction they are most attuned to or uh, what their um, disposition is for. Even though they've been raised in one, that doesn't necessarily mean that's what their personality is meant for. And then they have to choose, after they've had the test, they get they choose uh, what faction they're going to belong to, and they're not allowed to ever change that. And, and there's also a, a fringe group that's referenced, the factionless, just a disenfranchised group who don't uh, belong to any of the factions, but they don't really factor into the film. Um, so the, and the film gets its title from... Divergence are people who uh, the test won't register for them. They don't fit neatly into a faction. They're more unique individuals. They're, well, individuals. They're not sheep like everyone else. They supposed to be one way of saying it. And, of course, Beatrice Pryor uh, is one of these. And that leads us into the film of uh, she's trying to discover who she is, and, uh, of course, she leaves the abnegation faction and joins the dauntless faction, and she meets this guy there who's kind of like her drill instructor, but he's cute, so he ends up being her love interest later as well. And, you know, then there's this whole thing where, that the, of course, the, the government is, or, well, not the government, but certain people in the society are hunting down divergence and wanting to get rid of them because, of course, they're a threat to this flawless... Uh, it's the classic utopian-slash-dystopian uh, future where, on the surface, it looks kind of like a utopia. Everyone fits into their nice little niche. Uh, everyone does what they're supposed to do. Everyone gets along, but it's really dystopian because it's also revealed you know, that this is uh, very uh, oppressive and... Um, uh, you know, unfree type of system. So uh, I think that'd be a summary uh, of the. Basic, a, I think that's basic. an excellent start, Nicholas. 
and I think that that'll that might it might hook some people in, and and I suppose one of the people we managed to hook in uh, to watching this was Justin, which a uh, fair fair confession that. Nicholas and I are the type of people who would watch this movie just for fun because that's the sort of people we are. We watch science fiction movies. But uh, Justin does not regularly watch that. In fact, he very proudly states he has never watched Star Wars, which, which is a mark against his friendship with Nicholas and I. But that, that's a discussion for another time. But, <laughs> but, but, but he, um, he was forced into watching this movie because I wanted him to be on this episode with us. And um, as the person who doesn't watch science fiction movies, and as someone who is thinking about it from the Trad Reviews angle, um, Justin, give us a bit of your feedback. Well, you know, when I started watching this movie, and again, like you said, I'm not I'm not much of a science fiction guy. I mean, I certainly have seen you know, a lot of the classics, minus Star Wars, much to uh, Mr. Wansbutter's uh, unhappiness. But um, I... Um, I had a lot of you know a lot of thoughts about this movie. Uh, the first you know the first thing was uh, I was telling both of you before we started the show was I find it very fascinating this rise of dystopian movies that we're seeing you know out of Hollywood. I mean, Hollywood has really sort of jumped on this whole post-war, post-apocalypse technological future, uh, large you know large pockets of humanity which are no longer with us. Um, you know something horrible has happened. And uh, generally speaking, um, they cast these movies into some sort of struggle with the government. And this, this one is obviously no different. From a, from a purely outsider's perspective, I mean, the movie has a lot of problems. Uh, and I know we're going to talk about those problems later on in the show. But I found fascinating the, um, the storylines, particularly the fact that when you look at the struggle of Beatrice Pryor's faction um, abnegation with the uh, with the people that wanted to rule, it was cast against this idea that well you know these these poor peasants they uh, they obviously have uh, of course the movie never mentions it but they obviously have some sort of uh, moral fiber which it doesn't take a stretch of the imagination to think of them as being. Christians of some kind, of some of some flavor, if you will. I mean, obviously they're not being called Catholics, but um, they they have this this moral fiber which is selfless and honorable and noble and humble. There's a couple of parts in the movie like where they're told, you know, you don't look at yourself in the mirror, you know, very long. You make sure that you know you don't express love too much because you don't want it to become you know a vain love. You know, you have all these different little things that are that are playing into her faction, and of course they're the poor people. Of course. In the movie, she has to, she being Beatrice, has to rise out of this when she takes her, her test, which obviously she can't pass. She, she doesn't fit into any faction. She doesn't test to any faction. She's, you know, a self-thinker. She, uh, you know, quote-unquote, thinks outside the box. And so you have the storyline building that free thinkers aren't tolerated by the government, because, and the government being the fact that the, the faction erudite wants to take over and go ahead, Wansbutter. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, but I was going to say that was, that was a kind of a bit of a plot hole I found with the movie. Just to jump in a bit, and it gets a bit confusing because at the beginning of the movie, abnegation is presented as being the governors of this city, but it, it seems pretty clear throughout the film that erudite actually runs it. Right, and I think that 
where where the movie progresses and where it gets very difficult, particularly if you're coming at this fr- from a Catholic point of view, is you see a lot of roles developing in this movie which fit the social engineering platform of today. For example, once Beatrice takes the um, uh, the Dauntless faction and she decides to go become the protector, well, now she takes off her modest dress and, and everything, you know, which she was wearing dresses and very, very proper proper attire for a, a young lady to actually be wearing. And now she strips that all off and she's wearing, you know, combat attire and she's excelling in the combat and hand-to-hand, things like that. And uh, she's obviously cast as the the standout amongst her class, even though she's different. So the movie takes on that storyline, and there becomes to be a conflict between her and the instructors because they're noticing that she's different. And you know, you begin to start to see this form, this 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 mold, which fits right into everything that goes on with today's modern society saying that, well, women should be powerful, they should be equal with men. I mean, it doesn't take, it doesn't take the stretch of the imagination to realize we're watching Hollywood when you see this, this small girl who's supposedly dueling with these full-grown men and is, you know, is taking them to task in the middle of a fighting ring. You know, and, and it, sort of sells, it sort of sells a message there. That, that, and I think just to sort of cap off my initial impressions, you begin to see the uh, the social agenda in this movie. And I think we can talk more about that in a few minutes. No, I, I think you make some excellent points, Justin. And, and so parents might be asking at this point, okay, okay, Stephen, stop. Why are you talking about this? Are you telling me you want us, our kids to see this? You're telling us there's all these negative things in here. And I, I want to I point out the reason I picked this film uh, for this episode. And the reason that um, I, we're talking about it is because I think it's important for trad parents to see it. I'm sorry, Catholic parents to see it. Because it gives you an excellent snapshot of what worldly teenagers are getting pulled into and that tension that may pull in your own teenagers. And I'm not saying that you know all teenagers have the same temptations, but I'm saying that if you want to get a really good accurate look at what the world is offering to our young people and the messages they're receiving, you are going to get 100% of those messages in this film. And I want to pick up on a theme that Justin talked about, um, and that's the idea of women in combat. Once she left abnegation to become part of Dauntless, she's then introduced to military life and this Starship Troopers-like existence where the men and women bunk together, they have showers and uh, bathroom facilities together and there's no separation between the sexes this is a, a an agenda of the UN it's an agenda of uh, unfortunately even the modern military uh, is doing this as well and this uh, unfortunately Joss Whedon-esque uh, motif of the strong female uh, Nicholas uh, will if I let Nicholas talk about this he could talk for about an hour so I'm not going to let him do that for an hour but I'm going to limit him to about two minutes, Nicholas, if you want to comment on this artificial construct of the, the strong female and how that contrasts with, with the strong female that we think of, not even strong female, uh, the, the ideal of the female uh, in, in the Christian sense versus what we're being presented here. Right. Well, of course, it, it's the classic, uh, well, classic modern slash liberal thing of that a, quote, strong, unquote, woman is basically a man in a woman's body, or a woman that can do things man can, rather than a woman who's strong because she does 
the thing of a woman who's a support to her husband, who's an inspiration to her husband, uh, or or other men who's pious. And I mean, even again, let's look at a Joan of Arc type of character. A lot of people will go to her and say, "Oh, well, see, there's been women in the military. You know, that, that's got the stamp of approval of Catholicism." Well, but no, because Joan of Arc didn't fight. She wasn't, uh, you know, beating guys up. She wasn't mannish at all. She was still the maid, uh, the maid from the Oakwood, and she inspired the troops. And in fact, she left the battle planning up to the generals still. But she was there as an inspiration. Um, now a little bit more out there than a woman normally would be, but that was for the particular circumstances of that time. I think the French needed to be shamed a little bit into doing what needed to be done. But this is something totally different here. And when we speak about the combat and that, I mean, this movie takes it to the next level. And, I mean, I, I felt sick to my stomach watching some of the scenes w- uh, involving Beatrice engaged in brutal hand-to-hand combat with, uh, with young men. And it, it's disturbing and sickening to me that this, is, this wasn't scandalous to anyone at all. This is just completely fine that, you know, this movie didn't make any waves. That this is what people have been inured to now. That it's okay to watch a woman getting just like beaten right into the ground, literally. Because one one of the things they have here, which as a former army person myself, I found all the military stuff totally ridiculous in this film. Um, you know, ha- ha- having hand to hand combat until one person is totally incapacitated. So you don't just see Beatrice in the early stages get beaten. You see her get beaten brutally and on the ground, getting kicked in the ribs, getting punched in the face. Um, She gets knocked out, literally knocked out. Yeah, she gets knocked out a couple times. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's just really... You're right, Nicholas. It's it's an assault. I mean, you're watching it, and and everything in you as a man just rejects this. And I'm thinking, you know, as I'm in the theater with these other people, that they're being taught that this is okay because the sexes are the same, uh-huh. right? That, you know, men and women are equal, so they can be equally beat up. And it's one of the most disturbing things that you can see. And this is what our teenagers are being taught. Yeah. And, and in the context of the film, it's that, there's a lot of things that are presented as being, oh, this is bad, that this is happening in the society. That's not one of the things that, that's presented as bad. That's just presented as, okay, this is how you make good soldiers. Versus uh, maybe, uh, I'll, I'll go into this, versus, um, interestingly, it's the abnegation faction who have someone who's guilty of the unspeakable crime of exercising corporal punishment on a child to correct them. <laughs> and I, when, that, when that scene came out, I was just like, you've got to be kidding me. You know, beating this woman into the ground and letting us watch her get savagely beaten, that's all okay. But, oh, you know, the, the guy that, that disciplined his uh, son with a spanking, you know, he's evil, and, you know, that's why the... The, the sun is all messed up now, and um, that was really outrageous, but interesting that, you know, that it's the compassionate Christian faction who are the, the ones that uh, did that. I think they did that as a way, intended as a way of, um, you know, some more subtle anti-Christian sentiment, but from a different perspective, one can think like, well, yeah, I mean, spare the rod, spoil the child. It, it would be someone who actually cares about his children who and how they grow up that might do that. Um, I think Justin made the point uh, earlier uh, before we had started the episode about the, the concept of 
uh, Christian theme sublimated. So, you know, we can pretend that religion has no part of our life and Christianity isn't as dominant as it is, but these other basically subplots that come out. So Nicholas referred to abnegation being essentially the Christians. And so we have also this, um, the idea of original sin. Um, Justin, you noticed there was an action, there was a take on original sin, wasn't there in the movie? Yeah, there was. That was, um, that was certainly for anyone who has the lenses of the Catholic faith, they could, they could certainly see this. And it was, it was one of the aspects of the movie where um, this whole idea of the principles of having the factions was supposed to uh, limit or totally eliminate human wickedness. Um, in fact, those words are even said in the movie by uh, Kate Winslet, who is the, I guess, suppose that she was the, the leader of you know, her faction, which was erudite. And she talks about, in the movie, about the horrible aspects of the, of the human will, uh, stealing, greed, lying, all these things, and that, you know, without the government to put these things in place to, to control the factions, which is really the big plot of the movie, is that she's wanting to eliminate, take over, you know, the lowest faction and have the, the learned or her faction take over. Well, she talks about in this movie that, uh, you know, human beings cannot be left to their own devices, okay? That, that they, they have to be controlled, they have to be, there has to be this, this, this stricture there over them, and that only they can provide this. And it, here again, what you're seeing is you're seeing these massive, massive overtures towards the idea of human perfection in the absence of grace, Okay, which really is the plot of free Masonic naturalism, if or organized naturalism is is this idea that man can reach his own natural perfection, and that's as far as he needs to go. And of course, perfection can be and should be achieved without God, without religion, without morality. Morality is what the government says it should be, and that underlying theme is throughout this whole movie. And you even hear this in in um, Four, who is um, also known as uh, Tobias, who is uh, uh, Beatrice, drill instructor slash boyfriend slash secret love, and then not so secret love at the end of the movie, where he talks about you know <laughs> you know you know I want to be a good person. I want to be honorable and decent and happy and kind and, and this, that, and the other. And so you see that. The other, you know, the other aspect that I will say about this, and I'm sure both you gentlemen will agree with me, is the music in this movie is just abominable. I mean, it is unlistenable. I mean, there were plenty of times where they faded into a certain part of the movie where the music was louder. I had to mute it. It was horrible, absolutely horrible. But that is... That, again, speaks to what the teen culture is, this real syncopated, synthesized, heavy beat, heavy music. It just, it, it, was, it was unlistenable. That's what the young people are listening to now, though. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, just, just like Stephen said to begin the show, this is a reflection from start to finish of the teen culture period. I mean, you go everything down the list from tattoos to piercings to body art to bodily destruction to violence to horrible music to this horrible inverted gender role. Of course, I hate yeah. that term, but I mean, this is, this is a reflection of everything we're living in right now. Right, and, and it's interesting that all of this is presented through this dauntless faction because everyone else is rather, you don't see much of them, but they're also presented as being kind of boring and... Actually, erudite or the um, uh, abnegation are called stiff. And that's kind of how all the factions are presented, except for Dauntless. They're the 
the freewheeling, fun-loving, you know, the brave ones. You know, they're the ones who are, they're the only ones you see laughing the whole movie, I think. Um, (laughs) You know, and yeah, they're the ones with all the tattoos and the piercings and and the horrific music, because, I mean, uh, Abnegation don't even listen to music, and you never see anyone else listening to music. So, I mean, and now, but that, it's interesting that it's the warrior faction who are the ones that are presented this way, that they're the you know, the main characters, kind of, and the ones that um, that uh, Beatrice is uh, entering into. But, I mean, there's a few different ways to go. Is this, like, a, a, a subtle way of trying to promote, again, wars and being involved in wars? And But it's also interesting to me, again, as a former soldier myself, like, the way soldiers are portrayed. Well, these aren't soldiers. They're not even warriors. They're just barbarians. You know, and I find that interesting. Yeah, they're just... They're just- yeah, they're just, they're out to have a good time. I mean, essentially, I think that's right. what Right, and how that is supposed to be people uh, well-suited to defending your civilization is beyond me. Right, uh, and this is, you know, want, this, is, uh, this is really a glamorized throughout the entire movie. In fact, that's why she chose them. That's why she chose that faction. Because dur- during, the, uh, during her little opening monologue of the movie, she talks about how she really idolized them. Oh, they're crazy, they're fun on and on, and she talks about finding meaning in this, that it's going to give her purpose, and that, oh, you know, I'm not sure I could ever be one of them, like, this is some high, noble calling, when, in fact, like you said, Wansbutter, I mean, this is, this really is barbarism glorified, that's all that it is, and something that, obviously, the women have no place in whatsoever, but going back to, again, what we said earlier, this is, this is a social engineering plan, and people are going to drink this stuff up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, the barbarians aren't at the gates. They're literally inside the gates in our society right. and in this film. Well, guys, I'm sure we could talk about this for quite a bit longer. I, I want to try to bring us to a close on it, and I want to take some different themes up. One of them is a quote from Janine Hayes, who's the Kate Winslet character. And the quote is, The future belongs to those who know where they belong. We can take this in two ways, can't we? We can take this in a Catholic sense, and we can take this in the sense of, of the movie. What do you think of that quote? The future belongs to those who know where they belong. Well, better you go first on this one. Huh. Uh, well, I, I don't... Well, cause, you know, it comes from the main, the main antagonist character. So it, it's, it's interesting that it's come from the antagonist, because on one hand, that's what really this movie is presenting on a subtler level, is that that they want people are supposed to just you know stay in their place and belong to it, but under this guise of of freedom, which I mean, really, like this is as Orwellian as it gets. Really, in our day and age, freedom really is slavery, or what people think is freedom is slavery. And I mean, as you say, there's there's a certain can be a Catholic aspect to that, or a Catholic take to that. Um, I mean, we all belong in heaven ultimately, and we need to do what it takes to get there. But, of course, in this film, this is a film made by, uh, I could, dare we use the term, post-Christian filmmakers in a post-Christian world. So, of course, they're taking it all from a completely atheist, godless, secular perspective. And as Justin was talking about, this trying to seek human perfection without God, which ultimately r- results in in tyranny. I mean, it's the only way you can even attempt it, and that's why in our society, 
as a lawyer, I see the laws the way they're going in criminal law. We're we're on a collision course for that. But uh, before I digress too much, uh, I'll, I'll turn it over to Justin for his thoughts. Well, I think it sort of echoes that old phrase, you know, you are free to do what we tell you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, welcome to America. You know, you have the freedom to do what the government tells you to do. And you know, we see that really, really starting to bubble. I mean. I think the cat is out of the bag at this point. I mean, you know, we look around at even current news stories about disciplining children and, well, the children may have got a welt on their on their hip or on their thigh, and now we're prosecuting someone for child abuse. If anyone has paid any attention to news headlines, they'll know the story I'm talking about. But it's, you know, this is so typical that... I think this is, first of all, this is not a Catholic movie. It can't be construed in the remotest possible sense of being a Catholic movie. So we can throw out the idea that this that this phrase means know your place in society and uh, make sure that you, know, you do good at your level of society. And it has nothing to do with that. What it has to do with is essentially functioning as the worker bee that you're being told to function as and to continue on down that path until you're told to function differently. It has nothing to do with, with anything noble or anything remotely close to Catholic principles. Uh, So I I don't think that can even be said. But I think ultimately what this movie is conveying is what we're seeing in day-to-day life, is that government knows best, and you are given this little box to function in, and dare, you know, don't you dare step outside of that box, and don't you dare subscribe to a different program than what you're being told. And that, was, that really was the whole crux of the movie, was that she was divergent. She, you know, she had her own thought process, and that threatened the government. And, of course, they were, they were killing divergent people because they didn't want them to do what they wanted to do. They didn't want them to think freely outside of what the government program was. And, uh, I mean, hello, I mean, this is, <laughs> this is what we're living under right now. So, it, again, the movie is a reflection of exactly our times right now. And it's not pretty, it's not good, and I can't recommend the movie. I, you know, as Steven said, I, I, there's no way I can recommend this movie to a teenager to watch. N- n- not a chance. No, but, yeah, I think the only way it could be recommended to watch is for mature adult parents as a, a course of study, you know, watch it to study it, not as entertainment. Yeah, I think we also need to bring up that there there are a couple of scenes that are definitely not modest scenes. As Stephen or as, as Stephen used the Bishop Sanborn line, yeah, there's a couple of smoochy smoochy scenes, and uh, there's a couple of scenes where dress falls below standard, of course, which is why I would never recommend it to any you know any teenager to watch. But I I do agree with Stephen that if parents want to see what the modern culture is, and they want to see it you know, on the silver screen, they can see it right here. And it's mm-hmm. very, it is very tuned in to our times. Yeah, and, and with all due respect to people who are a little bit older than we are, I, I think it is important for people who are a bit more removed from this culture to have a look at it, whereas I think Justin, Stephen, and I were recent enough converts that we kind of saw more of this in our own lives before we came to tradition, whereas if you've been uh, away from that, as you should be for many years, it's worthwhile to, I think, uh, look into it. Right, and kind of realize, whoa, this is how bad things are. Um, 
But but if I, if I could just, I, I've got to throw one little more comment about the clothing because I, I this I found <laughs> fascinating, and I always imagine that I can't I can't imagine Walter <laughs> throwing in a comment on clothing. <laughs> I, I always find this fascinating that this movie is yet again another example of how atheists and non-Catholics get it and understand how important clothing is, and then I and I'm just shocked that lots of Catholics don't realize how important clothing is because we talked about the clothing. The abnegation clan, who are supposed to be modest, caring, empathetic, all of the women wear dresses in that in that faction, and they all dress modestly. And the fact, other aside from the fact that they all wear gray, they dress in a very Catholic faction, fashion. Catholics are allowed to throw a bit of color in there. We're not Amish or Puritans, but these filmmakers get it. That 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 is that dressing that way has something to do with modesty, and it has to do with those other qualities. And now, of course, they're presented as kind of these, you know, dumpy, you know, they're the loserish poor people that just get pushed around, you know, and again, dauntless and their tight pants and everything, you know, they're the cool, cool, good guys. But uh, I mean, I, I always find that fascinating because this isn't the first uh, secular film I've seen where they, they, you can tell they, just, they, they understand it. They understand the importance of clothing, and that's why they won. The, they, well, they, didn't, they basically won the Cultural Revolution because in the '60s they understood it. Yeah. Let me say one other thing, too, here on this. You know, you mentioned something that Nicholas has said, you know, that we're converts and you know, recent enough. You know, we've all been at this now for, you know, 10 to 15 years, you know, having come over to true Catholic tradition. You know, we're all in our 30s. So I think the thing for me was it was shocking just to see, because, I mean, I don't associate with teens. I don't associate with, with secular teens. And even me being my age, I mean, I'm not too far removed <laughs> from teenage years, I don't suppose, yet. But it was shocking, really, to see culture on display or, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, the lack of culture on display, if you will. That yeah. was, I, I think that really stung. It was like, wow. I mean, I, I, I mean you kind of feel like, I think I'm out of it. <laughs> you know? yeah. And so I think that, I think that's, that drives the, you know, the point Stephen was saying was that, it is a good expose of everything you hear preached from your pulpits at your chapels, from your priests, or for those of us, you know, your bishops, who are talking about this horrific, disgusting modern world. And there it is yeah. in the flesh. Well, and Stephen works with uh, teens, as do I, as a criminal lawyer. And, uh, well, less people just say, oh, well, once, but it's just dealing with the criminal element, and that's why he's not shocked by this film. Stephen, you'll you'll back that up with Justin. Well, you've said repeatedly through this show that this film is an accurate portrayal of not just criminal, uh, ju- so-called juvenile delinquents. Right, just uh, the teens. You'll see that. Yeah, you'll see that among middle class or even the elites uh, who I who I work with. Um, I, again, like I said, Nicholas, Justin, and I could talk about this movie for quite some time because it has a lot of reflection points. So we haven't even mentioned numerous plot twists and other aspects of the film that I think will inform and help you see it. But, uh, you know, bring us, bring us a mind of study to it. There's some aesthetic to the film that that's worth appreciating. You come to it as a, as a work that you're going to study to understand. I also think it will give you some appreciation for the obstacles we face when we want to deal with conversion. You know, Bishop Sanborn always says, and Justin repeats it often, that culture is the great instructor of mind great former of hearts. 
And if you want to know why it's so difficult for us to, let's say, convert or bring someone over, or even have a discussion with someone at the supermarket, it's because this is what they're getting. They don't get the sermon. They don't get mass. They get this. This is their mass. This is their sermon. This is their restoration radio. And if you see that this is what they get, you understand just how much work we have to do. And with that, I, I think I'm going to leave that uh, divergent recommended for parents only and uh, for study on learning about your, your teenage children and, and what our society faces. I want to transition from that into something that isn't recent, or at least it's a little further removed, which is a book called Small is Beautiful by E.F. Schumacher, the F standing for Fritz, who's a German who moved to England. And the subtitle is A Study of Economics as If People Mattered. And again, I'm going to go to um, uh, myself this time as the, the plot summary person, because Justin wasn't too enamored of the, of the book and, and Nicholas didn't have enough time to, to read it. But it takes on the, the theme of small and as opposed to large scale capitalism. And I would say, look at this across every industry we have, whether it's CAFOs and large scale uh, farming you know, industrial farming, just saying industrial farming is, should be abhorrent to most people, uh, or large-scale production of machinery to just down to the basic little things, that little disposable coffee cup you, you, you drink and you, you toss away, what, what the system is about. And it's a critique. It's a critique on a number of levels. Being from the 70s, it's a bit dated, so it talks about concepts like peak oil, etc. But that led to an interesting discussion. Energy is a major part of this book. And I think it's important to think about the, the distinction of what is, what is the issue of, of energy, whether you call it renewables, whether you call it fossil fuels, whatever your, your take is on, on where we get oil and other resources like that. The question seems to be these days of renewables. So people talk about wind energy and solar energy. And it, I, I have, there's a sort of dark humor that I share with a lot of my students when you run into things. So there are solar panels, right? So, oh, solar, solar energy is clean. It's wonderful. We're using desert. And they've been, they've been finding that where there are large solar farms, there is a, there's a concentration. Of course, the mirrors are catching the sunlight. Any birds flying over any of those solar farms get killed instantly. They get fried internally by the concentrated sunlight, right? Or you have wind farms, wind farms, uh, uh, damage people's hearing permanently, kill any of the birds flying into that area. So all of technology has a price. There's no free, price-free technology. Every technology is going to have a price. So the question isn't about renewables. The question is, how much energy do we need to live? And I think it goes back to a philosophical question about the sun and about our place and, and you know, what is human society? Does human society need technology? Um, to link this to a movie which we're not discussing today, there's a recent Planet of the Apes movie, but they're trying to reconstitute humanity. And the question was, well, we need to hook up to this old generator because unless we have access to the internet and technology, we can't really reconstitute society, which of course fails to ask the fundamental question, what role does technology have to do with our society? Because there's a price you will pay for every technology you're involved in. Now, obviously, we run an internet radio station. So we're not anti-technology ourselves, but I think um, the idea of energy as part of the discussion is big. The second part that he uh, addresses, uh, which is a, 
favorite of the distributist movement is the idea of ownership that's more widely diffused. And here I often think of the famous Chesterton quote that the, the problem with capitalism is it creates too few capitalists. And this is the issue is that a lot of people just fall into a default mode of, well, capitalism is the what we practice in our country and there's fine and communism's terrible. So uh, anything other than capitalism isn't, isn't really worth looking at. And distributism may have its challenges, but the idea of the wider distribution of, of uh, property and ownership is interesting because he frames it within the idea of ownership not being a single right, but a bundle of rights, which again ties back to the Christian idea of ownership as responsibility and stewardship, not as tyranny and lording it over people. Um, so the idea of ownership is, as, a, as a bundle of rights, I love that phrase that he uses in the book. Finally, the last thing is, how are we going to bring this about? Um, we've got to be more conscious about it. Either we're going to have to legislate this into law that corporations can only grow to a certain size, and right away I can hear uh, the free market Catholics uh, getting very upset of talking about you know interfering with the market because you know the market is is morality, which which is a discussion for another episode, probably even another series of shows. But the idea that we might have to legislate this into into law, uh, or um, furthermore that we when we're working in development in other countries, be it third world countries, the idea isn't to duplicate a first world life. We're not going to try to get them to, to have a first world life, but try to encounter them on the third world level that improving uh, the lives of Africans is not to get them cars and houses, but is to get them clean water, food, and some basic education. That might be a good place to start instead of just making the first world the model for everything. So I could go either way. I could, I could ask Justin why he stopped reading, or I could ask Nicholas about any of these themes. I'll, I'll let whoever wishes to go first uh, kind of pick that up. Well, I'm, I was intrigued in the pre-show to hear that Justin couldn't get through it, so I'm interested to hear why. <laughs> oh, no, you guys are killing me here. Well, I will start by saying that, in all fairness, um, I started reading this at about probably 28,000 feet in the air on a jet that, with a crying baby right in front of me that screamed <laughs> all the way from Orlando to Detroit. So it, it, was, uh, it was a little bit difficult to, to actually get into the book. I probably yeah. should go back of, and read it. But Just to go ahead training for what married life is going to be like. Justin. <laughs> so here, here we go again. <laughs> well, you know, I... I um, there were some good things, I will say. There were some good things, but I think I got like 30 or 35 pages into it, something like that, and I found like, eh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not going on with this. I, I think part of the problem was I really didn't like this idea that, it, I mean, listen, you know, those, those who know me well know that I'm very, very much of a true conservationist. I, you know, I, I definitely believe in being good stewards of the environment and the earth, this, that, and the other. What I disagree with, however, is this idea that we are running out of energy and that the, the population burden on these, I believe what Schumacher calls precious assets of quote-unquote fossil fuels, a term which I do not accept because I know, I know the, the genesis of that term, and it came from John Rockefeller. And I totally uh, – this is, again, a bigger topic for a different show, and I, I, I don't want to get too far off the beaten path here, but I do not subscribe to that theory, okay, and that this idea that 
that modern man is this this sort of ties into that time frame where you had the book uh, the population bomb by uh, Paul Ehrlich in the in the mid 70s was that well this impact upon upon the earth of all this population you know the earth can't can't continue to sustain this we're going to run out of energy you know we we have the illusion of unlimited energy we have the 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 illusion of unlimited power on and on I, I, I started to read that and I was like you know I just I have some problems with that, um, and 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 that's not to say that we don't have a burden to be good stewards of you know petroleum and energy. But these 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 things are so far out of our control. I don't think it presents itself well in the first few the first few pages of the book. Now I will give I will give him credit. I mean he does talk about the errors of communism. He does talk about the errors of of the this 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 whole assembly line mentality of course now schumacher was confronted at the time the post war economics moving into what we would call socialized economics now where you know you, you have a a global economy so i think at the time he was at a very interesting point in history where a lot of what he said made good sense but a lot of it too i think was dated for that time period and when you're talking about you know, economics it's that can be problematic and so I think that um, some, at some point in time, I will go back and read it. I did read a pretty, pretty solid um, critique of this on a blog not too long ago about why it can't be squared. But, of course, I'll, I'll tame my tongue on that because I know that you know, we're not presenting it as something horrible, as something that you know, should be read, which I, I wouldn't disagree with it. But I think if one, if one understands Catholic economics, that they would probably have some problems with this. Well, um, I, the idea of you know, where Catholic economics, I, I, I love that. I love that phrase. This is the idea that Schumacher converted to Catholicism, albeit 1971 Catholicism, right? But he converted to Catholicism and was really influenced by Rerum Novarum and Quadragesimo Anno. So it's not surprising that, uh, that some of the ideas really come through. And in fact, um, about five years before he converted, he was on a radio show in England and he got some feedback. He says, uh, that, that said, oh, this is standard fare from a Catholic economist. And he was really offended because he wasn't Catholic. And he said, oh, I, he was like, I'm, I'm not Catholic at all. Uh, and, and what was interesting uh, was that, that idea that he, he, he said that he had this anti-Christian bias that had been built into him by, by the culture and that he had to, to fight through it and, and, and walk through it to, to get to, to small is beautiful. I think uh, if, you're, if you're not, let's say, very well acquainted or someone who would consider himself a hardcore distributist like Nicholas would, uh, and it's not something we've covered very deeply on the network. It might be something that we get into a little, a little later, either next season or the season after. It's just not something that you can cover in one episode. It has a lot of layers to it. But um, I think it's a pretty fair primer to get you ready for the Catholic notion of distributism by trying to just simply break down the narrative of, capitalism versus communism, good versus evil, and, and he does a good job of explaining what, what works and what doesn't in, bo in both systems with boxes. Uh, he does this in, towards the later chapters in which he explains, okay, what, what, what's on the x-axis for communism, the y-axis for capitalism, and how do we find this, this middle ground that is, that's on a human scale? I think that, that human here is a code word for, for Christians. Uh, the, what, what's the Christian scale? Something that is sustainable, something that takes the human into account. And, and he points this out, this is a very obviously Christian concept, that work is not drudgery. But the idea isn't to get free from work so you can quote-unquote live. 
but that living understands that work ennobles you, gives you character, and is part of our mission as humans. I think that that can't be heard enough in a society in which we're told that, that work is terrible or we need to free ourselves from work or uh, wage slavery or other terms like that. You know, work is something ennobling. It's something that was given to us by God, and it's how we'll earn our salvation, among other things that we do. So um, Small is Beautiful, recommended for those who are interested in economics, uh, for those who are not flying at 28,000 feet with a screaming baby, and uh, for those who have some time to get into a 250-page uh, work on, on economics and know that it's going to be a, a, a primer for a Catholic take on economics, not necessarily Catholic per se. Uh, I'm Stephen Heiner, and you've been also listening to Nicholas Wansputter and, and Justin Sutter. And today on Trad Reviews, we've been talking about the movie Divergent and just finished up talking about the, uh, the book Small is Beautiful. The last thing we're going to talk about today, we always say for last, the fun thing, is the game. And today's game, uh, today's episode is Settlers of Catan. For those of us uh, who have, we usually just call it Settlers. And in our, in our group today, we have a newbie, a noob, who managed to, to win <laughs> his first ever game uh, after chirping about five minutes before he won. I don't know, uh, I don't know how to win this game if someone can just show me. So uh, rather than have the expert whose child is a master at Settlers uh, or the intermediate person who's, who hasn't, who's played Settlers a, a number of handful of times, I'm going to ask the noob to tell us about his impressions of Settlers of Catan and how, again, I guess you got dragged into it again, didn't you, Dustin? Because you got dragged into watching Divergent. You got dragged into uh, um, watching Settlers of Catan. Well, yeah, we're, uh, we're just, Settlers of Catan. We're just constantly corrupting poor Justin, Stephen. Yes, pretty soon. Yes, pretty soon I'll become socially inept and disconnected. You know, hanging out with all you people. You know, yes, I said you people. But but, um, uh, but before we get Justin's um, impressions of it, should I uh, just give a real quick rundown of what the game is and how it works? Because Justin's only played. Yeah, one. sure, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, because it, it's a game that a lot of people probably haven't heard about, and it's a lot different than the typical games that most people are used to, that you can walk into Walmart and buy, like, uh, Risk or Monopoly or things like that. It's what's called a Euro game. It's from Germany. They have a different take on board games there, which I think is fantastic. So it's a game, Settlers of Catan, as it implies, the players are settlers who are settling this uh, unknown land. The expansions are of a medieval theme, because there's an expansion, Knights and Cities, that you can add on to it. So the pieces have a, kind of a Middle Ages uh, aesthetic to them, which I appreciate. You, The board is randomly generated each time you play using uh, uh, hexes, and uh, each hex has either grasslands on it, uh, mountains, hills, forest, or sheep pastures. And um, at the beginning of the game, everyone gets to place uh, a little settlement, at, which is a fledgling settlement and a full-grown city, on an intersection of uh, any three of these uh, squares. And there's a number placed on each of the squares, and e each person, when they take their turn, they roll the dice, and what, what the dice roll, any uh, of the hexes, that match up with that, everyone that has a city touching that hex, so say there's a six on a grassland, if someone rolls six on two uh, six-sided dice, 
anyone who has a city touching that particular grassland that has the six on it gets a, a card of wheat. And then you can use the, you get wheat, uh, ore, iron ore, bricks, wood, and wool. And you can use these to build roads, build more settlements, upgrade settlements to cities. You can use them to buy soldiers because there's also brigands who roam around the land and they'll, every, anytime a seven is rolled, the person who rolled a seven gets to place the brigands down on a hex. And then anyone who has a, they can, no one can collect from that, that hex as long as it's rolled and the brigands are there. And they'll also steal from the people who have uh, lands there. So um, then the game, uh, whoever gets 10 points wins, and you get points for having a settlement, you get a certain number of points for a city, you get points for having the largest army, you get points for having the longest road. And uh, whoever gets to 10, 10 uh, uh, this is one of the geniuses of the game because you always reach 10 uh, when you've, had, you've played a decent amount, but you're never satisfied. You always feel that the game ended too soon. And I think it's perfect because it makes you want to play, play more. You never feel fully satisfied because you always feel like, well, if we just had a couple more turns, I would have uh, been able to win. And uh, there's trading. Uh, people can trade uh, their cards with each other. So you need, you know, of course, Stephen uh, haggles all of us. We all lose our shirts uh, with his uh, bartering. But... Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, that, that's that's the game in a nutshell. And then there are expansions. Uh, as I said, there's a Cities and Knights expansion. Like once you've gotten the hang of the beginning game, then I recommend adding the Cities and Knights because then you get um, uh, Viking barbarians whose ship will keep coming closer and closer each time a seven is rolled until they land, and then they'll pillage cities unless you have knights to defend, and then. Whoever uh, has the most knights gets a special defender card for more points, and then you have cities. You can build cathedrals and all kinds of things like that in them. It's a bit more complex, but that takes the game even to the next level. It's already a great game in the basic. Um, and so it, it might sound complex, as I related over the radio here, kind of cramming a game that takes an hour and a half to play into just a couple of minutes. But I think Justin will back me up that it's, even for the uninitiated, such as himself, someone who has never seen Star Wars and is just not a nerdy loser like <laughs> us, uh, even he was able to play it and take us to school. You love to keep mentioning the fact that I haven't seen Star Wars. That, I think that's a point of pride for you, actually. It's <laughs> <laughs> oh, one of the great, one of the greatest tragedies of our friendship. <laughs> And you'll never let me, you'll never let me play that down. It, it, the game is great, and it, it's become so, somewhat of a tradition. Every time I find myself in the, uh, the northern territories of Canada, we get together and play the game because it is so much fun. And, it, and, and I will say that it is a game which becomes exponentially more fun the more people you have and the more alcohol you have. So it, it, it can become it can become a very fun adult game as well. You begin uh, sort of like we talked. Um, we did a show. What was it, Stephen? It's been like what. Uh, our first trad reviews was uh, Monopoly, I think. Was that right? Our yeah. first one. Yeah. Okay. First, yes. first or second, but anyway, um, it can become a bit of that that style of a game with all the bartering and trading, and it can get pretty cutthroat because someone might need stone or ore, you know, or wheat, you know, or wood, um, and of course, uh, I think Nicholas, you forgot to mention you know, the thief that's in the game too. How does that work again? Yeah, the robber. Yeah, any time a seven is rolled, and then whoever rolled the seven gets to place them, and then he steals cards from 
whoever you landed on. Or if you have more than seven cards, you have to throw away half your hand. Right. So, you know, it's a fun part of the game when you roll the seven and then you get to make the determination amongst all the players sitting there who's, you know, who's, whose area you're going to put you know, the robber on and, 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 and take their stuff. Well, the it's, correct it's, answer is always wands butter. That is always <laughs> well, the correct answer. Yes, as we know. As a person who doesn't get to play board games very often, it's very, very interesting to see the thought process that went behind this game compared to, you know, as, as Nicholas said, like Risk or Battleship or Monopoly, what, what you would call like the staple American games. This game, no matter how often you play it, it takes a different dimension each time you play the game. And I, I tell you, I had a great time. My first time around, I was a little bit frustrated because I couldn't quite figure out like what the strategy to win the game was. And of course, everyone's laughing at me because they've played the game and they know how close I was to actually winning the game. And yeah, there I sit, there I sit saying, I don't understand this. I can't win this stupid game. And uh, of course, you know, they're all like hardly containing their laughter. Of course, Stephen, Stephen is reaching a point of complete outrage that you know this person who's just playing the game for the first time is actually about to win the game. And of course, I. I think, I think in the spirit of full disclosure, we have to uh, we have to announce that Stephen actually left the room. He was so upset that I won the game to begin with on my first go around. <laughs> this is not true. This oh, not don't, true. don't 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 make yourself go to confession here, Stephen. Don't you were you were furious that I won the game. You were absolutely furious that <laughs> that I won the game. And and uh, but but you know, getting back to the game, there's so much strategy that goes into the game that it just takes you to a different level amongst the typical American board games. And I, I'm very glad that that you know I was introduced to the game. And the last time I was up there, which was back in the spring of this year, we and you know, we had what four or five guys over, and you know we mm-hmm. were sitting there playing. I mean, and that game went late into I think it even went into the morning hours actually. And uh, it was it was so much fun. There was so much strategy that was yeah. that was going on, and you know the trading back and forth of different you know different you know commodities, and oh you know I need this to build a road, I need this to build you know you know this next portion, and someone would say, well I'll tell you what, I'll give you one iron ore for five wheat, and you're saying wait a second, five wheat for one ore? Hey buddy, you, know, you want it, you better ante up, <clears throat> you know, and and it, it gets to be a really really interesting strategy competition, not just the luck of rolling the dice, but actually how to tailor the game to a strategy that you have to win the game. So I, I would, I mean, you know, certainly if I had more people to play with, I would have that game in my house. In fact, I do have that game in my house. Uh, Nicholas gave me a copy of it. So, yeah, in, in true geek fashion, I when they came out with a new edition with new artwork, I bought it. <laughs> so I gave Justin my old, my older version. <laughs> It's collecting dust on my shelf because I have no one to play it with. No one wants to play with me. <laughs> if you if you live in Central Florida and you want to, you know, help Justin out, uh, get shoot shoot mail at truerestoration.org and let him know that he's got a settler's partner. Um, Nicholas, dare we call this game a, a Catholic game? Well, that's a that's a good question. Um, <laughs> that that actually you know catches me a little off guard. I mean. Normally, you don't think of a game like this, oh, is it Catholic or is it not? But uh, when I think back to actually just the recent clerical conversations, when Bishop Dolan points out everything in the world is really either ordered towards God or ordered towards the devil. Nothing is truly neutral. Um, I would say that I think in a lot of respects, I think this game is somewhat Catholic, and maybe that's part of why these Euro games are so attractive. They, you know, 
they've still got a little bit of fumes in the tank over there in Europe, whereas we never even had it in the first place. I mean, it just has that different dynamic to it. You're, it it's more focused towards building things up rather than destroying things. There is that level of competition, but uh, I don't know. It seems like a, a healthier competition. It's not a competition of crushing your your opponent. Although, I mean, I'm as big a fan of military-slash-war strategy games as anyone, but I, I think it does have elements. And, I mean, just board games in general, I, I'm i a fan of them. I think they're a much uh, better way for people to have some entertainment than what society normally offers us, which is, what, going to a bar and watching TV <laughs> or video games. That. Yeah, and there's lots of social interaction. I, I think that's good. It's something that really kind of greases the wheels. When Justin was over uh, the last time, I had a number of men from my chapel that he'd never met before. It's something that kind of helps get conversation going. Uh, you're playing the game. You get talking with each other. And um, so I, I think it does fit into a Catholic way of recreating and having some entertainment. I mean, I really like just the ethos of the game, the fact that there, you, there are such things as robbers, and there are such things as you would lose, you know, the resources you have, that that's, and that's just part of it. You know, you're, you're building things, you're trying to trade with people sometimes, you know, you, you do need ore, and all you have is wheat. I mean, I remember a time in that game that Justin references that I had, I got to know seven cards of wool, and I couldn't get timber to save my life, and all I needed was one one thing at Timber, and of course Justin was holding out on me like uh, like he would, but because he, he was accidentally winning the game. But um, <laughs> that 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 concept of supply and demand and building things and the fact that un- things unfortunately happen, but you keep going, and that these people are your your competition, but they're also your friends. They trade with you. I, I think there's a lot there to recommend it as just part of a Catholic life. And we see this absence of technology. And again, I don't want to push the theme too hard, but I want to relate back to Small is Beautiful and Divergent that, you know, what does the future bring? Is technology our salvation? I don't think so. And if you look at something like Settlers, in a time when people are addicted to their, their little computer games or their little apps, that an old school game like Settlers can be so wildly popular uh, you know, there's, you'll see it here in Europe, you'll see it in the United States, you'll, you'll see it in Asia. It's an internationally popular game. And I think that that says something. When something's internationally popular, it's a thinking game, a strategy game like this. But there's something to it. And um, we, uh, at least uh, I think all three of us can heartily recommend it. Uh, uh, Nicholas, as the parent in, on this episode, can you speak to what age um, makes sense in the junior version? Yeah, well, depends on the children, of course. Um, there is a, a version called uh, Settlers of Catan Jr. That game, I started my children playing that when they were about four or five years old. It, it's, a, it's a much simplified version. They could certainly handle it. My older son was eight now. He had outgrown Settlers Jr. at least a year ago. So, uh, I mean... The uh, the full game, I would say, I would think most eight or nine year olds would be able to play the adult version, not without the expansions. And um, for children younger than that, there's uh, Settlers Junior, which uh, I would say about five years old should be able to handle that that version of the game. I think it might be also noteworthy to tell people what the price point of this game is. And just as you were talking, Nicholas, I jumped online just to see what the base game goes for. 
and uh, you know where people can get it. The base game, which you have to have before you buy any expansion packs, will cost you forty-two U.S. dollars. So it's a little bit more expensive than what you know you're going to find at Walmart, but it's not that much more expensive. And for you know for the entertainment that it's going to give, and really, I think it's going to broaden your horizons a little bit on board games themselves and what they can be. And uh, let's say I said that's forty-two dollars. You can get a number of the of the expansion pack that are available, uh, seafarers, uh, cities and knights, traders and barbarians, those kind of uh, play off and enrich the base game. You can get this at uh, www.katanshop.com. That's C-A-T-A-N-S-H-O-P.com. There's a there's a real nice you know, interactive site there. You can see you know what the what the base games are and in all of your expansion options. You know I think I think it's a pretty fair price for certainly another game that you're going to get. The, the expansion packs will run you about the same price as what as what the the base game will of of forty two dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and other than online, again, this isn't the type of game that you're going to find in Walmart. You'd have to go to a specialty gaming shop, but I would. Uh, I would not discourage people from going to a, a, one of those type of hobby shops to look to look into it. Um, it can be a little bit intimidating for the uninitiated to go to a shop like that because it's usually full of uh, real geeky guys who are really people into, like Nicholas, <laughs> right? Yeah, right, exactly. Who are, really in, who are really into these hobbies, and the walls are probably plastered with pictures of robots and spaceships and uh, wizards and things like that. But not only will you be able to find this game there easily, in my experience, the the guys that hang out at those shops, although they might look a little funny and smell a little funny, they are super friendly guys, and they'll bend over backwards to uh, introduce you to these things. And the store owners will usually have an open version of most of their games hanging around, and they'll even let you play a game because most of them have gaming tables in them as well. So that that's an option if you're... Uh, a little uh, feeling a little more adventurous than uh, than buying it online just based off of our word. Absolutely. I think they even have an online version you can play too. You can try the game out. Um, in fact, I was just doing my my uh, uh, my all-seeing eye Google search here, and uh, you can they actually have an online version you can you, know, you can play and try out, so you can kind of get a feel for the game. But I yeah. I would encourage you to stay away yeah, from just, that. Just Justin's go ahead and get the game. A, Justin's creating an account right now for himself. No, no, I have the game. Remember, just knowing to play it with. Right. Yeah, That's why yeah. You, you can go play try it online now. <laughs> you, you you can try it out online, but um, I mean, a game like this really thrives on the human interaction. So you're never going to be able to duplicate what makes this game so much fun. Well, that's why uh, I said what I did, Ron Butter. That's why yeah. I said what I did. You should yeah. you, oh, you should go ahead and buy the game and buy it in person, you know, and you know, play yeah. it in person. You certainly did. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, before before we before we, we start any conflicts here, I'll I'll, I'll end the episode. Uh, we want to remind you that Trad Reviews is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved. Any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. Permission can usually be very easily obtained by writing to mail at truerestoration.org. Remember that our email address for this show and all of our episodes on for this show is tradreviews at truerestoration.org. If you liked what we talked about today, if you hated what we talked about today, if you've got a favorite game that you want us to review or a book or a film, uh, we've gotten some suggestions from our subscribers, uh, from our members rather, and we would encourage you to uh, put, put in your own suggestions as well. And... Um, 
And that way, you might even uh, appear on an episode if you re- feel really knowledgeable about a game that uh, that Nicholas doesn't know about, which would be very rare. Uh, you know, you might be a guest on you might be a guest on the episode. So, uh, gentlemen, it's been a, a real pleasure to have you on as always. Thanks for uh, Justin. Thanks for watching a movie you hadn't planned on watching and uh, and playing a game that you had never played before to to help uh, contribute to our episode today. And, and uh, Nicholas, as always, thanks for your expertise on these subjects. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks. Thanks, Stephen. No problem. And, you know, now you don't have to twist my arm to get me to play Settlers. It's, uh, it's a game I look forward to playing when I'm in your company. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, if you please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who help make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple ave for our work the next time you pray. The music we'll send you out with is, again, from Nidhi Divergence. Um, as Justin said, it's, uh, it's interesting music, and uh, hopefully it might uh, inspire you to go see the film and get a little hard and serious look at our culture. For the restoration, I am Stephen Heiner. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.